1: Welcome to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. One of the great gray areas of First World War historiography deals with the African-American experience. Even as the war was drawing to a close, white historians, participants, and politicians sought to limit the record of the participation of black soldiers, while also seeking to recast the standard narrative of the war, as a white American crusade against German militarism. As a result of this, the rich experience of the African American community and their participation in the war was lost and hidden away for public view. While there have been some efforts since the end of the war to restore this history to its rightful place, until recently, all too many of these accounts have focused on specific units, individuals, or events. Often written by well-meaning amateurs, driven by their own zeal to correct injustice, and set the record straight, many of these accounts miss the mark in creating a solid historical narrative. This is not the case with Chad Williams' new book, Torchbearers of Democracy, African American Soldiers in the World War I Era. We'll be talking with Chad about his book and reviewing the extensive archival research and the painstakingly constructed narrative, balanced with his own insights as to how the First World War and the immediate post-war period should be reconsidered as the founding point of the modern civil rights movement. Hello, Chad. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Very good. Today we're talking with Chad Williams about his new book, Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War One Era. I've read his book and I can highly recommend it. It is part of a recent trend in American military history in that it's dedicated to restoring the voice of the African-American community and their sacrifices, contributions and struggles for respect and equality during the First World War. Chad's making a great contribution to the story through his painstakingly constructed narrative approach. But he also has much to offer in terms of understanding the delicate balance between obligation, duty and honor on the part of black soldiers and rejection, racism and inequality on the part of white society in the United States and abroad during the war. Chad, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and what motivated you to pursue the project?
0: Sure. Um, well, I went to graduate school, initially planning to study the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, and as I began to read more and more about early 20th century American history, um, and specifically the World War I era, began to get uh, more and more interested in that particular time period, and specifically the place of African Americans during the World War I era. Um, I was struck by the void in historical scholarship on African Americans during the war, and more specifically, the experiences of African American soldiers, and I saw this as an opportunity uh, to really uh, examine uh, what I view as a critical period uh, in American history and in African American history more specifically, uh, through the experiences of African-American soldiers. Um, And uh, it's still a a period which uh, I'm pleased that a lot of historians are now gravitating towards, um, but obviously a lot more work uh, needs to be done in really exploring the complexities of this particular time period.
1: Not oh, clearly. I mean, especially with such an important period that's been overlooked for so long. Exactly. Um, you position the First World War really as a turning point for African-Americans in their quest for legitimacy and equality in American society. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Well, I think it was absolutely a critical moment, uh, particularly uh, in the context of early 20th century America. Um, I really frame how African Americans approached the war and specifically the meanings of military service uh, in relation to the Civil War and also the experiences of black soldiers in the regular army um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, where the questions of citizenship and obligation, uh, the relationship between a race and a democracy were uh, very much unsettled. Uh, this was a period in time when the gains of the Civil War and Reconstruction had been largely sw- swept away um, through uh, various uh, discriminatory uh, measures, uh, legal um, as well as uh, informal segregation, uh, racial violence, so African Americans approach uh, World War I as an opportunity uh, to really bring effective meaning uh, to democracy um, as both an ideal but also as a relationship uh, with the state in terms of uh, citizenship rights um, and opportunities uh, for uh, the expansion of, uh, of a notion of democracy uh, in which African Americans were really struggling uh, to make uh, a reality um so I definitely see this as a as a crucial moment uh, in which um, African Americans began uh to forge uh different opportunities, different uh strategies of uh, for uh expanding uh their place in American democracy within the context um, of the war and through uh, the complexities um of the opportunities but also the limitations of serving in the nation's military.
1: Okay. What was the Army's general position on African Americans in 1917? Um, we, we know, of course, that there were the four colored regiments, right. but there was also the specter of Brownsville and Houston. Right,
0: right. Well, the um, as you said, uh, the Army uh, did... Had the long established, uh, Buffalo Soldier, uh, regiments, um, the 24th and 25th, uh, infantry and in the 9th and 10th, uh, cavalry, uh, regiments. So there was a place for African-American soldiers, um, in, uh, the, um, army, um, leading up to World War, uh, one. Uh, but this was, of course, highly, uh, problematic, um, specifically Because as you mentioned, uh, there had been a long history, uh, both long as well as uh, recent uh, racial tensions uh, between African-American soldiers in the regular Army um, and white Americans, particularly in the South um, and in the Southwest, in Texas, uh, along uh, the Mexican border. Uh, where uh, racial clashes such as uh, Brownsville um, and the uh, more explosive uh, Houston Rebellion, as I uh, describe it in August um, of 1917, raised uh, a, a really palpable sense of fear uh, amongst uh, many white Southerners, but also within uh, the War Department about how best to use African soldiers uh, in the war, if they should be used at all. And if so, in what capacity? Uh, Would they be trained uh, in the South? Uh, Would they be allowed uh, to serve in combat units? Who would command them? Uh, Would there be a place for African American officers? So these kind of long-standing historical anxieties uh, surrounding African American soldiers and their place in the Army, which really goes back to the Civil War and, and the early days of Reconstruction, reverberated uh, during uh, the mobilization uh, process uh, in uh, in 1917 uh, concerning uh, the expansion of the American Army and the place of African-American uh, soldiers uh, in the wartime army.
1: I see. Was there resistance within the black community towards participation in the war effort?
0: There was some, absolutely. And I think this oftentimes doesn't get, uh, uh fully enough, I mean you have a number of African Americans uh particularly in the South, who were simply apathetic uh, about serving in the military uh, but also apathetic about the war more broadly, do not see it as relevant to their everyday lives. Um, obviously, the challenges of being black um, in the United States uh, during this time, particularly in the South. Uh, weight heavy on the minds of many um, African Americans, so fighting a war for these vague notions of democracy and, and freedom uh, did not resonate uh, for many um, African Americans, um, and they approached the war uh, very apathetically. Uh, we're not interested in uh, fighting. You have a number, um, or really a smaller number, a more highly politicized uh, African Americans, particularly on the radical left uh, associated with the uh, Socialist Party, uh, who were exp- explicitly opposed uh, to the war on political and ideological uh, grounds um, and uh, felt that. Uh, The United States um, had no business making the world safe for democracy, uh, to invoke Woodrow Wilson's famous phrase, until democracy was made safe for African Americans um, at home. So you do have strains of of resistance and opposition um, amongst African Americans um, that took various forms and was articulated in different ways.
1: I see. see. How did racial ideology affect the training and organization of Black soldiers during the war? Hmm.
0: Well, the the training of Black soldiers during the war was a uh, a, a highly contentious question, um, and it was shaped uh, by what at the time was described as the race problem or the race question. And this translated into the question or the problem of African-American soldiers in the wartime army, as I said, uh, stemming from uh, the Houston uh, rebellion in August uh, 1917, which occurred uh, really shortly after uh, the uh, establishment of the Selective Service uh, system, uh, just to what extent African-American soldiers were going to be uh, incorporated into the drafts in what capacity they were going to uh, serve, where they were trained, who would command them. These were all questions that the War Department um, and uh, the army struggled with really throughout the duration um, of the war. Uh, so race and racial ideologies really played a, a central role in the, um, the policies that the War Department created, um, and really their inability uh, to formulate um, a kind of coherent uh, system uh, for um, organizing <clears throat> and mobilizing. In mobilizing um, African-American uh, soldiers. The vast majority of black troops served in labor capacity. Uh, they were not assigned uh, to combat units, which also reflected um, a, a prevailing Racial ideology on the part of war planners that black men, particularly from the South, were uh, inherently suited and more naturally suited uh, to serve in a labor capacity that they did not have the necessary qualities uh, to be effective combat soldiers. Uh, particularly on the Western Front uh, in France. Uh, so for that reason, as well as a host of other reasons, the, the overwhelming majority of black soldiers uh, serve uh, in the services of supply, uh, stevedores as uh, ditch diggers, um, as um, you know, burying uh, dead bodies, a whole assortment of other uh, very unglamorous uh, duties, both domestically um, and overseas uh, as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Essential.
0: essential oh yeah I'm oh, okay.
1: sorry I'm, I'm sorry essential but menial tasks
0: absolutely absolutely right. and I, and this was this is really something that African American soldiers themselves yep. struggled with um but also something that um, African American uh, social and political activists struggled with as well right there was a, a intense desire on the part of uh individuals like W.B. Du Bois a whole host of newspaper editors a number of different uh male and female political activists across the ideological spectrum to use the war um, and the participation of black soldiers in it as an opportunity uh to expand um the uh possibilities um of African American uh citizenship rights um and inclusion uh, in the democratic process um, in the United States and serving in the army but specifically fighting uh, in the Army, you know, fighting on the front lines was seen as crucial uh, to doing that, uh, you know, for African-American soldiers to demonstrate uh, their worth as Americans by sacrificing or you know, shedding blood on the behalf of the nation. So the fact that the vast majority of black servicemen did not get that opportunity, that they were forced to serve in a labor capacity, uh, was um, highly contradictory uh, in many ways and was difficult to reconcile uh, for uh, obviously, black soldiers uh, who are experiencing you know these uh, these different types of discriminatory policies, but also on the part of their advocates as well.
1: Okay, yeah. You know, related to that, much has been made of how the French, in particular, welcomed African American troops who were rejected by the American Expeditionary Force. Right. Is this an accurate portrayal? To an extent. <laughs> Um, historians always
0: like to qualify things. Um, the uh the War Department established two African American combat divisions. The 92nd Division, which was made up of uh, drafted uh, black men, served in American Expeditionary Forces. Uh, the 2nd Black Combat Division, the 93rd Division, uh, was made up primarily of African American National Guardsmen. It had one regiment of black draftees. But the 93rd Division was quite literally given over to the French army um, and served throughout the duration of the war as part of the French forces. Uh, so in some ways, they had a, a much better experience uh, than their counterparts in the 92nd Division uh, because uh, the French uh, were more receptive to their presence, um, were more experienced, I might say, in dealing uh, with... Um, Soldiers of African descent, based on their use of their own colonial soldiers, um, at least from the outset of the war in uh, 1914. Um and without question, I think uh, France did approach race, uh, from a different perspective, uh, than many white Americans did. But this, uh, this isn't to say that France was completely colorblind. Uh, I think it would be, uh, a fallacy to, to make that that argument of France um, had its own race problems uh, in terms of dealing with their uh, colonial uh, subjects uh, from North and West Africa. Um, and they also viewed African American soldiers through A highly romanticized and we might even say exoticized uh, lens, kind of viewing the the presence of uh, African Americans, particularly in terms of their cultural aesthetic, as uh, kind of these exotic uh, racial others. Um, So there, there was definitely a um, a a strong presence of racial uh, racial ideology in how. Uh, The French were viewing um, African-American soldiers.
1: Okay. Um, What about the actual combat performance for African-Americans in the trenches Mm -hmm. between comparing the two divisions?
0: Well, the, the 93rd Division, uh, because it did serve with the French Army, um, had many more opportunities to fight on the front lines uh, than uh, the 92nd Division did. Uh, the French Army was desperate for troops uh, by uh, 1918 um, and uh, were uh, were happy to get whatever help that they could receive. Uh, so, soldiers of the 93rd Division were thrown into the trenches uh, relatively quickly uh, following their... Uh, incorporation into the the French army uh, for example the 369th infantry regiment uh, probably the most famous uh, black infantry regiment of the war uh, the that uh, would become known as the Harlem Hellfighters uh served for 191 days uh straight um, on the front lines without uh, ceding any territory uh, to the German army uh, so they had a, a much more extensive uh, combat uh, experience um and were decorated uh, accordingly, uh, many um, of the, um, most of the regiments of the 93rd Division. And many individuals, um, such as uh, Henry Johnson, uh, for example, who fought uh, with the 369th Infantry Regiment was, uh, along with Needham Roberts, the first two American soldiers to receive the Croix uh, de Guerre, uh, the French uh, War Cross. Uh, so their contributions, their exploits uh, were, were recognized. Uh, by uh, the French Army um, and uh, that was a very important uh, part of how the war was seen and used by African Americans at home uh, as a, an example of why um, African Americans deserved uh, increased uh, citizenship rights. Conversely, the 92nd Division had a much more contentious experience. Uh, they had to deal with the full brunt of institutionalized racism. Uh, within the Army, um, a, uh, a really pervasive uh, sense on the part of many white uh, military officials that black soldiers were not capable of being uh, effective uh, soldiers, uh, that black officers um, who were uh, commissioned and assigned to the 92nd Division, uh, were not effective uh, leaders. They did not have the intellectual capability uh, to be effective officers. So all of these assumptions um, and the sheer weight of uh, institutionalized racism uh, within the 92nd Division uh, really curtailed the opportunities, but also the performance of the 92nd uh, Division, uh, particularly in the uh, meuse uh, Offensive in the fall of 1918, uh, where one of the uh, black uh, regiments of the 92nd uh, Division um, had a very trying experience and, uh, in fact, colored um, how uh, the uh, entire uh, division and black combat soldiers, more broadly, uh, were viewed after the war, um, being seen as failures, black officers being viewed as uh, incompetent, uh, so the memory um, of the 92nd Division uh, being perceived as a failure um, has been really very powerful, and, and one of the uh, one of my goals um, in in my book in uh, kind of retelling the story is, is to complicate uh, that memory, that legacy. Um,
1: so. Well, I mean that's that's an important objective, particularly in view of the legacy of these two experiences and how the 92nd Division's uh, memory seems to mm-hmm. outlast or su- survive that of the 93rd until recent times.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, I was going to ask if you could comment briefly on the 1925 Army War College report and how that represents mm-hmm. this legacy.
0: Yeah, in some ways that's directly informed uh, by the perceived failures of the 92nd Division and specifically um the, um, uh, the failures during the are argonne uh, offensive. And that was a report, uh, that, uh, had significant implications for how the post-war army uh, would be organized and uh, the opportunities that would be afforded, uh, to African-American soldiers and officers, uh, as well. Really directly out of the, uh, kind of contentious, uh, memories Um, of black participation in the First World War and really reflects um, how on the one hand you have an official narrative that is coming out of the War Department positing that black soldiers were failures, uh, made no lasting contributions to the war, that the experiment in black um, officers could not be repeated um, in uh, the peacetime um, army. and at the same time, an effort on the part of African Americans, um, both historians uh, but also um different types of um, artists, uh, veterans themselves to push against uh, this idea that black soldiers didn't have any meaningful uh, contribution uh, to the war. Right, So you have a a counter memory that's uh, being propagated by um, African Americans to demonstrate in a wide variety of different forms and venues um, and manifestations that uh, black experience in the war was something that was meaningful um, and something that the nation as a whole should be proud of.
1: Aside from the issue of combat performance and suitability, how did Jim Crow follow Black soldiers to France?
0: Well, in some ways, it it followed them um, like a shadow. I mean, they, it was inescapable right, in in many regards, uh, particularly for the servicemen who. Uh, were incorporated uh, into the American expeditionary forces, both as com- combatants but also as um, as laborers as well. As I mentioned the uh, preponderance of uh, black servicemen in the services um, of supply uh, so they served in completely segregated units uh, their social services were uh, segregated uh, as well uh, this led to inferior uh, treatment, uh, quality of services. Uh, for example, the YMCA um, was uh, uh, was highly discriminatory in terms of many of their practices towards um, African American uh, troops. Uh, so uh, it was a France was in some ways a racial battleground uh, because of the presence of Jim Crow, uh, American style white supremacy being transplanted uh, from. Of uh, the United States uh, to uh French soil, uh, you have a um, a hysteria uh, that that grips uh, many white military officials that black servicemen are going to uh, rape white French women, uh, which is directly uh, you know, pulled from uh, the fears of rape um and the sexual anxieties surrounding black men uh, in the south which contributed to uh, the um, the horrors of, of lynching and racial violence uh, in the american south so many of these uh many of these uh, racial uh, racial fears and anxieties uh, are being transplanted uh, to french uh, soil which in some ways, I'm going back to one of your, your earlier questions, shapes how African Americans viewed their French counterparts. Um, in some ways, this trope of French racial egalitarianism um, came about um, because of the juxtaposition uh, between how virulent uh, racism was um, as practiced by white um, white military officials and ordinary white soldiers versus how uh, French um, officers and soldiers and civilians as well uh, did not uh, treat African American soldiers um, in that type of way. Not to say that the French were uh, were colorblind, but that uh, the racism that they experienced uh, amongst the French was no near nowhere near as vicious as it was um, what they what they experienced from their uh, fellow white Americans.
1: It's a great tragedy, of course. What, what about the German perspective? Is there any record of that? Uh,
0: there are some. I mean, there's some really fascinating uh, anecdotes um, of Germans uh, becoming aware um, of the soldiers who they were fighting against on the other side of the lines uh, being uh, African-American uh, soldiers and um, their efforts to have kind of, uh, I guess, uh, Propagandize uh, amongst uh, black uh, troops, uh, you know, telling them that you know, why are you fighting for the United States? Uh, you know you're being discriminated against. Uh, you should throw down your arms and fight um, fight with Germany, where you'll be treated equally. Of course, this was preposterous, uh, but it does it speak to a, a certain racial awareness on the part of uh, the German forces um, and uh, their. Um, uh, their ability uh to try and uh, take advantage um, of uh the racial dynamics uh within the United States um and use that to their advantage um, so you know obviously uh Kind of fast forward into uh, the immediate post-war uh, period and uh, the response of, uh, of Germany uh, to the occupation of the Rhineland on the on the part of the French army. How they used uh, African soldiers uh, to, to occupy the Rhine and the uh, intense uh, racial response on the part of the, of the German people to that occupation kind of speaks to kind of their kind of deep-seated. Uh, you know, racial, uh, racial anxieties and notions of white, uh, supremacy. Uh, so you get that played out in, 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 terms of some of the interactions between African American and German troops as well. Uh, but I think one of the most interesting things is how, how the German army, you know, tried to use, uh, America's racism, um, and really the racism practiced by, uh, by Great Britain as well, um, to their advantage.
1: Let's turn back to this side of the Atlantic. How high were African-American hopes for change at the war's end? Well, I think, and this is a,
0: a really important question, um, and I would argue that they were, in fact, very high. And part of the the historiography that I, that I try and challenge in, in my book is the sense that as soon as the war came to an end, that there was this Deep, uh, powerful disillusionment that set in amongst African uh, Americans—that their hopes for for change were uh, were immediately dashed. That they essentially did not get anything out of the war. And I think if you look at the period immediately after the war, um, as African American troops are demobilizing, as they're returning back to the United States, returning back to their communities, um, both north and south there is a tremendous sense of hope and optimism that their sacrifices, that their contributions um, have been worthwhile. Um, And uh, you see this in a number of different forms, uh, in African-American newspapers, um, in the homecoming parades um, in New York, Chicago, but also in uh, communities uh, throughout the South uh, as well, a really palpable sense of optimism, of hope on the part of African Americans and amongst African American soldiers as well, that perhaps you know something something was going to change uh, that this was the moment where the nation would recognize uh, the contributions that black people um, had made um in the context um of the war and these very powerful notions of of democracy and self-determination that Woodrow Wilson and and others were uh, were propagating um so i think i think it's important to recognize that that this was a moment where uh, the the hope of democracy as, as i characterize it was was very real <laughs>
1: And we know the outcome, the strengthening of Jim Crow and the increase in race riots that followed the war. I'll ask more about that in a moment, but I also want to ask, when it did not work out as hoped for, what was the response of the African-American community, particularly among the elites who had hoped for change? Right. Well,
0: there's, I mean, there's clearly a a sense of frustration and um, a... Um, a, a desire um, on uh, the part of, of many Black intellectuals, um, uh, Black uh, social and political uh, leaders, to try and make sense of, of this moment and what what happened. And um, I would argue that instead of a kind of retrenchment, uh, there's a renewed commitment on the part of many. African-American leaders uh, to continue uh, the fight for African-American citizenship and civil rights. I think W.B. Du Bois articulated it most poignantly uh, in his uh, famous post-war um, essay, Returning Soldiers, you know, declaring that you know, we return, we return from war, we return fighting. Um And that spirit, in some ways... Embodied, uh, the uh, post-war period for many African American, uh, civil rights um, activists and leaders, male and female, both uh, north uh, and south, I'm um, in trying uh, to, um, obviously survive, you know, the maelstrom of the post-war period, um, but to use it, i'm um, also as, as an opportunity to continue, uh, the struggles that they had initiated, uh, during, uh, the war, pe- wartime period, uh, itself. Uh, so I think we we see um, a, a a groundwork being laid during World War One that continues throughout uh, the interwar period and into World War Two uh, as well. Uh, for example, this was a significant moment for uh, the NAACP and the expansion of what would become you know, the preeminent civil rights organization. Um, in terms of its uh, its membership um, and its voice uh, within national uh, politics and you know, that really occurred during the war and post war period. Uh, you also get the emergence of new voices, uh, more radical um, mm-hmm. black nationalist pan africanist voices who are uh, you know, advocating for um, uh, more radical visions of social and political change, both domestically um, and internationally. So this lends, I think, into a a more dynamic period of black um, intellectual and political um, activity, uh, which uh, was was characterized as the the New Negro Movement following the war.
1: Can you say a little more about the New Negro Movement? Um, what that represents broadly, in terms of a response both to wartime and, and post-war experiences of disappointment for many African Americans?
0: Yeah, well, I think it, it was informed by by combination of both the disappointment, but also the, the hope and aspirations that I was uh, that I was alluding to mm-hmm. earlier. And I think we we have to point directly to. To the war um, and to the experiences of Black soldiers in the war, and how kind of the combined ideological uh, dynamics of the war and actual experiences of Black soldiers um, as well as civilians uh, in in the war transformed the racial and political consciousness of. Um, African Americans, right, and sharpening um, how they viewed uh, the relationship between race and democracy, um, how they uh, how they approached uh, their status in, in relationship to the nation, uh, but also their status in relationship to a broader African diaspora uh, as well. So the emergence of a whole range of different. Um, uh, Black um, and diasporic uh, political uh, voices, individuals, um, organizations uh, such as the Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, led by Marcus Garvey, which I talk about um, in the book, really, I think, embody how the war kind of transformed the The way that black people saw themselves um, in uh, the post war uh, world and and tried to engage in various strategies um, to uh, expand uh, the boundaries of of democracy uh, in ways that um, it, you know to, quite frankly kind of challenged uh, the uh, the status quo um, and challenged how the very notion of of civil rights had been uh, practiced prior to the war. So it was a a very important period.
1: I mean, do we see it as a period where the leadership of figures like W.E.B. Du Bois is called into question?
0: Absolutely. Um, He uh, took the stand uh, during the war um, of advocating uh, for black uh, participation, black loyalty, and uh, was very controversial uh, in that regard. Uh, you know, he uh, infam- infamously wrote uh, the uh, editorial "Close Ranks," in which he uh, you know, implored his fellow Black Americans to close ranks uh, with, uh, with with our fellow White Americans, and we make no ordinary sacrifice, but we make it gladly and willingly, with our eyes lifted uh, to the hills. And this did not sit well uh, with with many um, African Americans who. Uh, did not see um, uh, did not see the benefits and uh, placing their demands for increased civil rights um, on hold uh, during the duration um, of the war, right, submerging uh, their demands for equal rights within uh, the uh, within the restrictive nature of American uh, nationalism um, and the exigencies of uh, participation uh, and loyalty and obligation uh, in the war. Uh, so as a result, you have a number of more radical uh, voices. Such as uh, Hubert Harrison, such as Philip Randolph, later uh, Marcus Garvey, uh, who are very critical of Black leaders like uh, Du Bois, um, and uh, their criticisms resonate uh, with uh, with many African Americans as well, particularly working-class African Americans, you know, who are likewise, uh, you know, frustrated with uh, with uh, kind of the tone and, and tenor and strategies uh, that more uh, "quote unquote" mainstream black leaders uh, were uh, promoting uh, during the war. Right? So you get, I think, a broadening of the spectrum of black protests uh, during the World War One era, which would obviously you know, be very uh, important in terms of thinking about of the larger historical nature of black protests um, and black protest thought um, throughout the duration of the 20th century.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is also influenced by the race riots of the early 1920s, such as in Chicago and Tulsa, et cetera. How were these events connected to the wartime experience?
0: Well, I think these um, the race riots that that occurred really immediately after uh, the armistice. You had know, racial clashes that were taking place in France even before black soldiers began uh, to come home, um, but they were, I think, a product of the uh, the fears, uh, the anxieties on the part of many white Americans and the hopes and aspirations of many black Americans, um, and uh, when kind of these opposing forces kind of clashed um, in various environments, whether we're talking about a Chicago, Washington, D.C., or a Tulsa in 1921, or even in local communities um in the South, um, you have these explosions uh, which which took place, which were which were direct products um, of the war uh, The Chicago race riot uh, for example. Was in many ways precipitated by the influx of black migrants, uh, from the South. Mm-hmm. This was the beginnings of the Great Migration, uh, which would last, uh, you know, until World War II. Uh, but during the World War I era, you have, um, you know, half a million African Americans who leave the South, and migrate to cities like New York, Chicago, uh, Detroit, other uh, major northern and midwestern uh, cities. So the urban landscape in a city like Chicago had been transformed uh, by the presence of black migrants. Uh, This led to increased labor tensions. Um, And when you add returning black soldiers uh, to the mix, um, it really made for a very combustible uh, combination. Um, And this was, I think, translated in in a number of different uh, cities as well. Uh, Washington, D.C., you see a similar uh, phenomenon which took place in the race riot uh, there. But you you also see in many of these racial clashes, uh, these mini race wars, we might aptly characterize them, the determination of African Americans um, and African American veterans in particular to defend themselves, to defend their communities, uh, to refuse, to submit to uh, Mm -hmm. racial uh, violence, right? And so the the race riots that took place during uh, the post-war period were in some ways qualitatively different uh, because uh, the nature of black resistance and Mm self-defense, I would argue, was much more vigorous, and a lot of that had to do with the return of African American uh, veterans, Uh, to their communities and what they represented, what they symbolized.
1: Right. Well, this is clearly a change from prior incidents before the war. Right. Um, Well, I wonder if it's also possible that this resistance – Plays into white fears about the returning veteran.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I, I talk about that in my book, just the the fears uh, that were generated around the specter of the returning black veteran. Uh, in terms of an increased racial, uh, political consciousness of what this would mean for African Americans more broadly demanding their rights as citizens after the war. Uh, you also have uh, very powerful sexual anxieties as well. Uh, the image of uh, black soldiers as um, being ruined, so to speak, by their relations with French women uh, in France, that they would return back to the United States thinking that uh, sexual relations with white women uh, were acceptable. Um, so this kind of feeds into the racial violence that greets uh, black veterans in the South upon their return uh, to the United States. So you do have these these different fears um uh, myths uh, surrounding black veterans which interestingly enough uh some African American leaders particularly in the south associated with the Tuskegee Institute went to great lengths to try and uh, assuage uh, to tell white Southerners that you know, look you know, black soldiers are going to return to their homes and they're going to be good citizens they're going to go back to the farms they're going to get jobs you have nothing to worry about um, and uh you know, there's, uh, I think, a, a clear strategy uh, behind that, uh, which uh, in some ways did not speak to the reality, um, uh, the reality being that many African-American uh, veterans uh, did indeed return back to their homes transformed uh, in terms of their racial and political consciousness and were not willing to submit to uh, the types of racism uh, that they had, uh, had endured uh, before as well as during the war.
1: Mm-hmm. In the end, what would you say are the lessons from the First World War regarding the African American community and the issue of race in the United States?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it, it demonstrates just how intertwined the very notion of race has been historically with the very notion of democracy in American history, that the two have, have always been inextricable. And I think during moments of war, I think in, in, a, in a broader historical perspective, that, that really becomes illuminated, right? That very contentious, oftentimes explosive relationship between race and a democracy, right? And we see that Quite vividly uh, during during World War One, uh, because of uh, how the war was framed uh, by Woodrow Wilson um, as a war to make the world safer uh, democracy, and how African Americans seized upon that that ideal, seized upon that rhetoric, and used it to their advantage, you know, to apply it to their everyday circumstances, um, and specifically apply it to uh, the experiences or, 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 I should, or I should say the, uh, the presence of black soldiers um, in the United States Army um, and how black soldiers themselves internalized uh, these uh, different meanings of democracy to make sense of their own experience. Um, so I, w- I would argue that in the big picture, right, this was a moment um, both domestically but also internationally as well. Mm -hmm. locally and globally uh, in which uh, black people and peoples of African descent uh, attempted to state claim uh, to a notion of democracy through the war and through military service that reflected their visions of equality and and justice and, and freedom.
1: Great. We're nearly out of time, Chad, but I do have one last question. Um, where do you go from here? Can you say a few words about your next project? The
0: next project. Uh, well, the the next project is going to be a, an offshoot um, of this this current project. Uh, I'm interested in looking at W. B. Du Bois, someone who we we talked about, and mm-hmm. uh, his. Uh, Historical writings uh regarding World War one he uh, had aspirations to write a uh, a history of black participation in World War one, uh, which he never completed uh, despite spending some seventeen years uh, working on it um, and I'm interested in telling that story, uh, just why what he uh, saw as uh, or envisioned um, as kind of the, the definitive historical study on World War One was never um, was never completed, and what this tells us about both the history, but also the contentious memory um, of uh, World War One, both from Du Bois's perspective and from the perspective of um, African American soldiers and veterans as well. Uh, so that's on the immediate horizon. Um, <laughs> more more down the road, I might. Uh, I might have some interest in doing, a, uh, doing some work on World War II, but we'll, we'll see what comes
1: of that. Well, that'll be great. Chad Williams, thank you for joining us today. I enjoyed our talk, and I'm looking forward to talking to you in the future about your next book. Take care. You have been listening to our interview with Chad Williams, author of Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War I Era. This is Bob Wintermute for new books in military history. Thank you for listening.